All right. James chapter 4, we're going to continue on in, uh, in this discussion here of what I entitled this morning, Wisdom in the Short Life. And, you know, we only have a, such a, a short time here to, you know, what are we going to do with it? Um, last week, if you didn't listen to, I think Mike's getting it on the, uh, on the web, which Janae's going to have it in the podcast later on today, I'm not sure, but if you haven't heard last week's uh, about the tongue, um, listen to it, and uh, I think it was very, very poignant. I know that for me, uh, I never really had a problem with a sailor's mouth, but I, I sure was very sarcastic when I was in my teens and early, you know, early 20s, and uh, it took a while for the Lord really to get a hold of my tongue because uh, sarcasm is, I'm really hurt. Some people say there's a place for it, I'm not going to judge that, but I know in my own life there's not a place for it. Uh, very hurtful. The easiest place, I think, to exercise sarcasm is in your own home to your own spouse or kids or, you know, what have you. Um, again, I'm not judging. Some people say some sarcasm is good, that, you know, but for me, um, it has done nothing but cause me grief. You know, the tongue, uh, we just a little bit of review here. Just, uh, we talked about, you know, it was a, it was a fire. It was a world of iniquity. You know, and, the, and iniquity is something that is inherently wrong. Okay, so we inherently have something that that of a little member that controls our body. Remember, we had that. I don't have the specifics here, but we had the uh, the weight of the Queen Elizabeth, the ship, something like one hundred forty-eight thousand or whatever tons. I forget what it was now, but anyway, the the rudder was what one tenth of that or something like that, and then it controls a little ship. And that's that was just an illustration on the fact that the tongue is such a small member of the body. Uh, yet it defiles the whole body. You know, we can defile ourselves and, and absolutely wipe out our witness by, with our tongue. We can spend, you know, weeks gaining somebody's trust or, or convincing them, if you will, uh, that the scriptures are the word of God or what have you, and yet we can destroy that with, with the misuse of the tongue. But as fire is set on by the world of hell, we looked at that word Guyana and what that means in the Valley of Hinnon how they used to burn human sacrifices, the pagan deities. Later on became a rubbish heap, if you will. It was a constant reminder of, of the burning of hell. Um, this is where the tongue originates. It's a member that is uh, that nobody can tame. Uh, I feel that men try to be good and try to tame this and try to watch what they say. Uh, I used to have family members that had what they call a a swear jar was always full. Um, you know, men tamed everything. All wild beasts, whatever, they cannot tame the tongue. But Jesus can. Jesus can turn your sour, bitter, muddy, corrupt spring that flows out of your tongue into sweetness of, of, of wine. That's my poetic understanding of it. And he has. Me. Still work. 
I perfect? Glad my wife isn't here because she would tell you clearly no. But the Lord wants control over your tongue. If anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Who gives to all liberally and without reproach, it will be given to, but let him ask in faith. God, I can't control my tongue, for example. I know that you can. Because you make a mute speak. You made a donkey speak. I know that you can control my tongue and change it. Um, another point that I wanted to bring out leading up to this fourth chapter, and we'll get into this, it's going to be uh, very intriguing. You know, people want to be have endurance and they want to have patience in the Christian life, and we should. And we should pray for those things, but I want to admonish you when we do, God will allow the trials to come. Because it's through trials that we, that we build up patience. We build up endurance. It's through the trials that God allows in our life. And we shouldn't shun them. Wisdom to know the difference between a trial that God has permitted to come into our life for our good versus a trial that we bring on of our own lusts and our own envies and our own tongue and our own backbitings and our own quarrels. That's called discernment as far as a, a, a biblical trial versus a trial that we might bring on because of you know stubbornness, sin, what have you. But we pray for endurance, for maturity, for not being able to be swayed by various winds of doctrine. That means discretion. God, give me the endurance to endure this race, and God will send the trials. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Chapter 4. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Ye lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Now we'll, we'll look at verse 2 uh, closely in a little bit. Remember, uh, before I go on, uh, punctuation is a very uh, relatively new concept in the Scripture. When the Scripture was written, there was no punctuation. So let's, we'll look at that. You have the New American Standard putting it, which I believe very, very understandably uh, breaking up. You know, you lust, you don't have, so you commit murder. You covet, you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. We'll go down to verse 6. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace, verse 6. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, there are so many unhappy homes, so many frustrated Christians, so many complacent marriages, and fighting that goes on within and without. 
me say that again. Let me let's look at that. There, you know, there are so many unhappy homes. You know, homes that marriages that are that are just a marriage of convenience. You know, they they've gone on to a point where they just can't. They don't want to. They don't want to leave because where are they going to go? Or they don't want to. They don't want to to fight because they they have enough wisdom and they know that's a losing battle. You know, you never win battles when you fight. Nobody wins. You know, it's just a complacent type of thing. Frustrated Christians. Um, just frustration, you know? Where there should be joy, there's there's animosity. Or where there should be joy, there's there's depression. Or where there should be joy, there's anxiety. Or where there should be joy, there's just that lack. There's a numbness regarding the scriptures. And, you know, I don't know when the last time I... I uh, had a desire to speak about Christ, and, and yet, on the other hand, I, I don't even know, remember when I, you know, you have no desire. It's just, you're frustrated. Complacent marriages or complacent relationships. The fighting that goes on, not only within your own heart, but, but outside. You know, what, what is on the inside manifests itself on the outside. You know, the man of peace is going to make peace because he's been, he's been, Made anew in Christ. He has a peace of God ruling in his life so that he is going to emanate peace. I told you a story, you know, and uh, I've told this to somebody recently, and, and uh, you want to take the sails out of your out of your spouse the next time you have a problem, the next time you have a little pity, a little quarrel, look at them and tell them you love them. That takes all quarreling and all power out of their argument. That's been done to me. When I was younger and I had that, that more aggressive, I always loved my wife. But the, 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 little, the little thing and, and then just looking at, at your spouse and saying, I love you. We'll pull all power out from that. Because that's what it comes down to. Where do wars and fights come from among you? They come from, look at, where do wars and fights or quarrelings, strife, discord, feuds, quarrels and fightings? You know, the Bible says that any fool can start a quarrel. But he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasures that war in your members. These arise from your sensual desires that are waging war within you. There's a war going on, whether we want to admit it. In us, it's the desire to be right, it's the desire to be first, it's the desire to have your point heard. It's a desire to vindicate yourself. It's a desire to put you on a level that you should be on. I'm, I'm the man. I'm the captain of my house. Whatever the case is. We, you know, if you really want a systematic uh, understanding of this, you must go through systematically the book of Romans and see what Paul puts it down for you in, in especially the chapters of 4, 5, and 6. And then we get into that 7th chapter and he talks about this. It's in every one of us. There's a war going on for supremacy. 
I don't do the things I want to do. And yet I end up doing the things I don't want to do. What is wrong with me? Well, we all know without getting into that, the victory is in, is in the, the residing of the Holy Spirit within us. God takes up that victory. God takes up the supremacy. But these wars and they fights, they come from among you. You know, wars and fights are in direct contrast with the preceding piece. And I'm talking about the preceding chapter, verse 18. Remember? Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Fightings and wars are the opposite of peace. There is enmity within. Did you know that we had enmity with God? We were at war with God. We were, we were the enemy of God. We, are, we, were, we were friends and captains, if you will, with the world, but we were enemies with God. Let me ask you a question. Is God or pleasure the dominant concern in your life? Are you more concerned about things of God or pleasure? Wow. If you're honest with yourself, you'll know exactly where you are in the Christian life. God of pleasure, the dominant concern in our lives. These wars that come from within us are from selfishness, they're from greed, they're from lust, they're from envy. And if you break those down, that all comes from a heart that says, me first. It's me. I love you only to the point that you can give something to me. You can fulfill my life. Whether it's whether it's it's sexually or whether it's it's uh, philosophically or, or monetarily, um, how many people do we know that that for one reason or another have fought over money, have divorced over money? We know a couple that very very well that they've been married since 1966, and the only reason why they stay together is because in the state of California. You have to sell your property and divide it. They don't want to see that neither one want to get rid of their home. Now, these people are not Christians, but we have ministered to Christians that are almost just as bad. They're frustrated, they're fighting. They don't want to let go of the supremacy in their life. Look at verse 2 you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. Now, I'm reading from the King James Version. We'll spend a little time on here on this second verse. You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You do not have because you do not ask. Webster defies lust as a bodily appetite, especially excessive sexual desire, but that's not it. It it is an overmastering desire for anything. An overmastering desire for anything. It's to feel an intense desire or intense drive to fulfill a need that you think that you have or you have.
I've searched several different translations, several different commentators on this, and I feel that, that uh, I've come to this rendering. And I believe the NASB comes close to this. You know, punctuation has its, its, uh, its flavor, if you will. So you lust and you do not have. You murder and you covet. You can't obtain. You fight and you war. This, you desire and do not have, so you kill. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You desire and you cannot have, so you kill. Yeah, that comes to the, uh, sometimes to the fruition of actual killing. You know, Cain and Abel and so forth. People kill for each other's wives or people kill for less. You know, that is, that's the ultimate. But how many times do we kill uh, the vitality of our own relationships? Or we kill our relationships because somebody's stubborn or somebody envies or somebody desires and they cannot obtain, so they get angry and they wage war. Covetousness. You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and you can't obtain. Think about that for a while. What does coveting mean? Coveting means that you want something that is not necessarily yours. You're not satisfied with what God gives you. Keep your finger there for a minute. You, you all know the story of Nabal's vineyard, right? Okay. Involving the wicked King Ahab and his more wicked wife Jezebel. This illustrates covetousness to the point of murder. When we covet something, that means we have a desire that we want it to be ours. And it goes beyond the fact of, well, it, you know, I want it. The thought of, does God want me to have it, sometimes doesn't even enter in. You know, they just want it. That's where the mind comes in, too. Well, I might not have Betty Lou down the street, but boy, I'll tell you what, I'm not a dead man. My eyes can feast on it. Can you? That's covetousness. That's lust. That's desire, and it's a strong desire. And you know what? Gone on unchecked, you will have Betty Lou down the street. And your, your marriage will fall apart. Your relations will fall apart. Your ministry will fall apart. Your, your fellowship with God falls apart. Wow. Keep your finger here for just a second and, and uh, turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. <laughs> oh, wow. I love the Bible. It, uh, it practices what it preaches. And Ahab covets, desires, wants beyond anything else, neighbor's vineyard. Wow. Jezebel. What a wife, huh? 1 Kings 21 illustrates this perfectly. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel. The valley of Jezreel is just a little bit north of, of Jerusalem, upper part of, of, uh, of Israel, next to the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. We know the distances because we know that Samaria was the capital of the ten northern tribes. So we know where this location is. You can look on the map. These things really happened. So Naboth had a vineyard 
right next to the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. Look at verse 2. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house. For I will give you a vineyard better than it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth and money. Look at verse 3. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers to you. Here we go, verse 4. So Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased. It didn't matter about God's decree or God's inheritance. It didn't matter that. He wanted what he wanted. So he was, he, he was sullen. He was displeased because of the word which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Wow. Are we, are, are we starting to see the, the problem that envy does? It overtakes everything. Not only your senses, but your vitality, your reason. Envy and lust takes away your reason, your godly reason. Look at verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Now before we go on, he was placing his eyes on something that was not his. He had other vineyards. He had other provisions that God had given him, but he was placing his eyes on that which was not his. That is lust. That is envy. That's desire. God has given me, let's believe this vernacular, we're all, we're all adults. God has given me a wife to love, to enjoy, to, to uh, walk this life with. To be a witness of Christ in the church. With, but my eyes are on something that's not mine. That's wrong. That's inherently wrong. It's iniquity. So Ahab says, you know what? I don't want the vineyards I have. I want Naboth's vineyard. Wow. Verse 7, look at this. And Jezebel's wife said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And she wrote letters to Ahab's, in Ahab's names, sealed them with his seal, sent letters to the elders and nobles that were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people. And see two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him, that he may die. Can you see the progression of evil that these inner struggles, left untamed, left unchecked by the Lord, left unruled by him, what they do? Envy's horrible. We can go to the book of Esther, remember? Haman? Mordecai, Haman was so obsessed with his position that he was willing to kill, and his wicked wife and friends said, hey, I know what you do. Why don't you make gallows 50 cubits high? Remember when we were there on Monday? Make this gallows 50 cubits high and hang him from it. Well, we know what God did. Haman ended up swinging from those gallows. Hey, 
I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to write false letters and I'm going to do this. And that is exactly what David did with Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. You cannot escape it. These fights and disquarrels and quarrels and lusts and greeds left uncontrolled by the Lord produce consequences. And we know what happens. Look at verse 11. So the men of the city, the elders and nobles, who are the inhabitants of the city, did as Jezebel had, had sent to them, and it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. And we all know the story from that. But we do know that who is our best defense attorney? Who is our vindicator? It's God. We read a little bit later what God did to Jezebel. <laughs> she didn't have a very happy ending. Where do wars and fights come from among you? They come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members. You desire and do not have, so you kill. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You know, the thought behind this verse seems to be that men and women can obtain real, cannot. Well, let's do the can first, and we'll save the other one for later. Men and women can obtain real satisfaction only by praying to him who alone can give it. <clears throat> as long as they allow their lives to be controlled by pleasure, real fulfilling satisfaction consisting, listen to this, consisting of true peace, full contentment, real joy will always be beyond their grasp. Always. So again, the thought behind this verse is that men and women can obtain this real satisfaction. But they only contain it by praying to Him who alone can give it. God is the only one that can give that satisfaction. Without Him, everything is just beyond that grasp. They want it, and they can't have it. By gummy, I'm going to find my satisfaction. That's what Satanism is all about. Humanism. Fulfill those desires. You have those desires for a reason. Do everything you can to fulfill it at the cost of your fellow man. Hence Cain and Abel. Hence Naboth's vineyard and Ahab. Hence David with his desire for Bathsheba. Hence Haman with his lust-burning desire to be who he wanted to be at the murderous attempt of Mordecai. And we could go on. The Bible's full of, or I should say it is replete. I love that word. Because it's replete with understanding of how envy, lust, greed, which is the seed of man's wicked heart, produces what we see today. And we have so much going on in the Christian church. We're going to see the answer to it about why this war is within us and what we can do about it. At the end of verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. 
John says in his first letter, chapter 5, he says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. God is not going to give you something so you can go and spend it on your pleasure. God is not going to give you anything that's going to feed the old man. God is not going to give you anything that's going to cause envy, strife, debate, deceit, quarrels, fightings. God is not going to give you the ammunition to shoot your partner's foot off, so to speak. And yet we ask because we think that God is obligated to do us. Hence we have movements today. You know what? A big destroyer of men is money. Big destroyer of men. But yet the fallacy is, is we ask God to give us money, to make us rich. Now God will provide for our needs, don't get me wrong. But we want to be rich. God desires everybody to be wealthy. Is that true? Well, we better talk to the Apostle Paul about that, or some of his disciples, or maybe Jesus himself, who had nowhere to lay his head, who was ministered to by not only his disciples, but a band of women, who on the way to the cross said, you women of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for your children. We could go on and on. So we have... People that say, in effect, God will, will give you whatever you want. There are people out there that believe that people should be millionaires. You want to be a millionaire? Ask God. God will give you all the money in the world. That's to our hurt. And we can go on. We want to ask for things that God is going to be pleased with. That in accordance to His will, because His will is always the best for our life. How do we pray, Master? Please teach us to pray. Pray in this manner. Our you know, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And it will. That fulfillment of that, of that prayer will be fulfilled. But it can be fulfilled in, in us. And we seek his will. To do what is right in his eyes. And we have the promise of knowing, talk about joy, knowing that I, if I pray the will of God, He hears me, and I have those petitions that I ask of Him. I want the desire of my heart. I want to follow Jesus Christ with all I have. I want to glorify God. I want to serve Christ to the glory of God, and I know that's His will. And He's conforming my life to it. You ask a miss. Wow. I had one of my sons one time who wanted to borrow the car. Classic, isn't it? Oh, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to go and, you know, I forget what it was. But really, it was a spending on his pleasures and it wasn't anything to do. Now, I knew this. Any good father would do it. No, I'm not going to give you the car so you can spend it on your pleasure. Because it is ultimately hurtful for you. It's deceitful. I remember a story, a true story of my uncle when back in high school. He had two other friends that wanted to cut class. 
to do something. And, and uh, so they made an excuse that they were each to their own class. They were sick or something else. They got to safely out and they went joyriding out and they ended up going over a cliff. It was, a, it was in Western Los Angeles. Both of them were killed. If Ralph were running along with them, Ralph would have been killed too. But what I'm saying is that God is not going to grant you something that you may spend it on your pleasures when he knows that is not good for you. Envy, deceit, lust is never good. Covetousness is not right. Remember that, uh, I love this, you know, that's why I love the Proverbs. And I, and I, I ask, are we, are we reading our Proverbs every day still? I know a lot of you are. It is daily wisdom, or practical wisdom, I should say, for daily living. My wife says, I always get that wrong, which I do. But there is a generation that is lofty in their own eyes. There is a generation that are pure in its own eyes, that is not washed from its filthy. There's a generation that are lofty and their eyes are lifted up. There's a generation that wants, that wants, that wants, that wants. But this is what God says. Feed me with the food that is convenient for me. Or feed me the food that is allotted to me. It's in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, if you just are writing this down. Because, lest I be full and deny you, I don't need anything. I'm self-sufficient. I deny you, you know, and everything's going good. Or, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, he could be talking in a you know, vernacular of food, sure, but it's in everything. The context of the scripture is everything. Feed me what is convenient or allotted for me, that you allot me. Give me what I need. If I don't have something right now, I must not need it. I know a man that, uh, a wonderful man, who had a bookstore, the manger in Carson City, Nevada. He was, the last time I talked to him before we moved here, he's 40-some-odd years old, desperately wanted to be married. Wonderful individual. But as a 41 years old, I think, he said, God just has not brought what I need. That's contentment. No war and fighting in his life. I want to know and have confidence that I can pray the will of God in my life. And by the way, the scripture we just read in Proverbs there, Proverbs 30, that's a godly prayer. Feed me with the food convenient for me. Let me be content. You know, contentment is a fading commodity. Which of you are content? You know, think about this. Answer within your own self. Are you content right now? With the life that you have, that the life that God has given you, are you content? If you are not, there's warring going on. There's a little bit of striving. There's, you, the Christian life is contentment. It's like that old additive. I will say again, the man who has God in everything has no more than the man has God alone. God is our contentment. He's our source. And he richly gives us all things to enjoy. All things that he gives us. That's the key. That's contentment. I don't want to be discontented. I was contented as, as discontented as a young man. 
Oh, I thought I had it all made. I watched my parents through the years. Wonderful people, but always reaching for that something, you know, always not, always wanted that better car, always wanted something else. They ended up getting a, a divorce after 23 years. Wow. You adulterers and adulteresses, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whoa. Listen to how the Amplified Bible, a uh, good tool, by the way. Never meant for a translation, but a good tool. Listen to how the Amplified translates this verse. And you, like unfaithful wives, having illicit love affairs with the world, and breaking your marriage vow to God. Do you not know that being the world's friend is being God's enemy? So whoever chooses to be a friend of the world takes his stand as an enemy of God. Wow. That is amazing. <laughs> and so true. John says in 1 John 2, he says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, wait a minute. Wait. We want to clarify this. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. We have to live here. There's our coveting, and there's our lust, and there's our uncontrolled desire coming in, and then war within the Christian. The Christian lives in a very plausible, very five, six sense world, however you look at it. Everything you can see, smell, touch, feel. I think uh, there's a note by C.I. Schofield that captures the essence of this world and the uh, atmosphere of it. He says, in the sense of this present world system, the ethically bad sense of the word, it refers to the order, listen to this, refers to the order or arrangement under which Satan has organized the world of unbelieving mankind upon his cosmic principles of force, greed, selfishness, ambition, and pleasure. This world system is imposing and powerful with military might. It is often outwardly religious, scientific, cultured, and elegant, but seething with national and commercial rivalries and ambitions. It's upheld in any real crisis only by armed force, and it is dominated by satanic principles. You want to bring that in your home? That's what lust, greed, envy does in the heart. Some of us have, uh, have understood and seen people that have their own Armageddon's in their home. There was a story of a man who was an old-time religious preacher, true, that used to beat his daughter with a belt and beat her and beat her and beat her. And his wife didn't do anything about it because she felt that it was her place not to say anything. Well, as the story goes, the child finally ran away from home and ended up shooting her own father because she could not stand the fact that 
He proclaimed to be a religious man, and yet treated her with scorn and contempt. Found that the man was secretly an alcoholic. He was raging mad. He didn't like his wife. He was an enmity with everybody. Multiple churches falling apart. We can go on and on. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Wow. We don't want to be partners with this world system. You know, there is a, a passage in Galatians which, if read rightly, it makes so much sense. Jesus, who gave himself, after right after is in Galatians 1, 3, and 4, but you don't have to turn there, but if you want to, it's, it's in verse 3. Have you ever wondered why a lot of Paul's epistles start out with grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Those are commodities, those are wonderful, that are given to us by God. We cannot make peace. We cannot make peace with God, and we ourselves cannot manufacture the peace of God. Those are given to us. We have been made right and have peace with God. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ, because on the cross, He died for our sin, He was buried and rose again for my benefit. And yet now we have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. So we understand that grace, unmerited favor, the mercy of God opened up the door, grace flooded in, uh, faith was the avenue that I apprehended these, thus I'm saved. So God says grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. But verse 4 says, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now, when you look at salvation, we are saved from the guilt and penalty of sin. We are being constantly saved from the power of sin in our life, which includes lust, greed, envy, and all that. And we will ultimately be delivered from the presence of sin. I am safe and secure now. God has delivered me from the penalty. He has delivered me from the penalty, period. He is delivering me from the power through the working of the Holy Spirit in my life. So the power of sin does not have a hold upon me as it did before Christ. And he will bring that to consummation at the end of the age when I am with him, whichever comes first. And I will, have, I will be dwelling without the presence of sin. Can you imagine that? No more sin. That's part of your salvation. That's something to look forward to. That's a gift. And we're fighting and we're quarreling. Really? Peter says that we're, we're to admonish our spouse, men. We're to treat them as co-heirs of salvation, of the grace that is to come. Not to fight and quarrel with them and, and, and put them down or what have you. I think the hardest thing to do is to be a Christian at home. <laughs> it's easy to be one out in the world. You can fool most anybody. It's very hard. 
Look at verse 5. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? This is the understanding of jealous being watchful and guarding. Exodus 34, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, for the Lord your God is consuming fire, a jealous God. He's a consuming fire. Most of us don't want to be that living sacrifice, which is our reasonable act of worship. We want to reserve something else. You know what? That when they burnt the burnt offering, they consumed it. And it just burned part of it and said, oh, well, that's good enough. It was a consuming, it was offering that was consumed. When Christ died on the cross, he was consumed. He died to sin and for sin. He was made that offering for sin. When he rose from the dead, there wasn't anything left of the old creation. He is the head of a new creation. He is all-consuming, jealous. The spirit within us yearns jealousy over us. He guards us. He guides us. He yearns. That's why Paul says that we can grieve him. He, why is he grieved? Because he wants you. Now, we can understand somebody who's been a Christian for a very short time, not understanding the principles. I mean, look at look at what Priscilla and Apollo did. They went to Apollos in Acts 18, where, you know, a mighty man in the Scriptures, but he only knew the baptism of John. Can you imagine trying to preach Jesus, trying to live the, the Christian life, only knowing the baptism of John, a baptism under repentance? But we have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. We've been taken from death into life. We're new creations in Christ. That opens everything new. We're new creation in Christ Jesus. Everything old has passed away. All of it's become new. There is a Christian life here that we have the Holy Spirit in. And this God we read about in the Old Testament that's a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. Lives within us. And he's jealous. He yearns because he does not, he will not tolerate rivalry. He loves you. And he wants you to be his Positionally, we are His. But conditionally, are we? Let's make sure that we are. Let's make sure that our condition down here, we allow God to fashion it so it might resemble a little bit of our position up there. We had a man one time ask ask a group of people, I wasn't there, but I heard about it, he didn't believe in, it, in the security of our salvation. And the people said, well, give me an answer. Why, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that you are not safe in your salvation? And he couldn't give them a viable answer. And one kid, who was about 18 or so, was in the crowd, was in this, this group that was going around evangelizing. He says, I can tell you one word. Jesus. Jesus is the reason I am safe and secure. I didn't raise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. I wasn't crucified for my sins. Jesus was crucified. That is the reason why we are safe, is Christ. And when Jesus said, I go to my Father and I will send the Holy Spirit unto you, and he will be with you and abide with you forever, 
That is God sending the third person of the Godhead to live within us. He yearns jealousy. We are his possession. He is jealous over me. He does not like when rivals come in. He will not. He is jealous for all of us because he loves us. I can't say any better than that. He yearns. But he gives more grace in verse 6. I'm almost, I'm almost finished here. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. By the way, I will end in verse 7. Just so we know I'm going to calculate all these things. Humble. Webster, who was a very godly man, says this about being humble. He says, having or showing awareness of one's defects. Modest, lowly, unpretentious. To lower in condition or rank, to make humble in mind. Psalm 25 says, The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. You want to know God? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. We all know 1 Peter chapter 5. Let me just let me just remind you of this principle. In 1 Peter chapter 5, that's a famous verse about the adversary. Listen to this. Therefore, humble yourselves. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9, if you're taking notes. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, the next time you want to pull rank over a fellow human or your or your wife, realize this, that you are nothing. I am nothing apart from God. That's like you're trying to be the ant that is proud and says, I'm on top of the grass looking out over the lawn when the elephant's about ready to step on. Humble? We need to be humble before God. Casting all of our anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Remember, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking and may devour, but resist him steadfast in the faith. And on and on and on. Steadfast in the faith. Resist the proud. God resists the proud. You know, let me... Uh, let me just take a few more minutes, and, and we're almost done. This, these are important, I think, and, and, uh, and we all have comfortable chairs. Um, I just want to make an observation. You know, when God talks about the end times, when God talks about the tribulation, the great tribulation, you can follow the strain of all the way through the prophets. He starts in, in an in a area of Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 12, which is very, very telling. And he says this, The day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything that is proud and lofty, and everything that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Resist God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This, the reason why God is going to punish these wicked, arrogant nations in the day of the Lord, so we know the vernacular of language of what he's talking about, 
Hill shall come upon everything proud and lofty and everything that is lifted up. That's pride. He's going to bring it low. God hates. That's what's ultimately going to bring judgment upon the world. The weakness, the rejection. That is ultimate pride. You know, when somebody rejects the love and mercy of God, that's ultimate pride and arrogance. I don't need you. I'll get there myself. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Knowing in this verse, in verse 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Brethren, you cannot do the resisting until you do the submitting. Until you submit to God, you cannot fully and in power resist the devil. That's why there are so many weak Christians. There are so many weak churches. There are so many frustrated people out there because they're trying as best they can. And there's a lot of sincere people out there. They're trying as best they can to resist temptation, to resist evil, to resist this and that, and yet they have not submitted themselves to God. If we submit ourselves to God, our marriages, Satan, watch your marriage. You that are married, talked about this last night. Satan wants your marriage. Make no mistake about it. Satan wants your friendships, your godly friendships. Submit to God. Make, make Some of you that might be listening have a problem with submitting to God, much like women have a lot of women have problems submitting to their husbands. Well, the Bible doesn't say, well, if I submit to my husband, he has to be good and kind and right. No, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that women submit to your husband. Well, that can't be right because, you know, this women's lip thing. Well, the only way a good marriage is going to work, I'm sorry, is that if women submit to their husbands, okay? But on the other hand, there is so much more that's put on the husband's shoulders. So let's go to the Christian life. Christian, submit to the Lord Jesus Christ in everything. But God's got the broader shoulders. God promises to carry us in His bosom. God promises to be with us everywhere. God promises to riches, bless with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God promises that not only when we go through that trial, He's going through us with us, but somehow He's there on the other side. God tells us our future. God tells us that don't worry what I began in you. I'm going to complete it. I'm going to. I remember my father, my, my mom had ordered me a chemistry set one time. Remember blue chip stamps? Okay. Long time ago, man, I waited and I waited and I waited and I waited. My dad sometimes, you know, worked out of town or whatever. It's, it's coming. I'll get it for you. I promise. I promise. What seemed to be years, probably was a couple days. I don't remember. He was true to his word. God says he's going to start something, and he did in your life. And he's going to bring it to completion. We can bet on it. But we need to submit to God. We need to submit in every area of our life. Then when the devil comes, and he will as a roaring lion, we can resist him. Some people are having a hard times in their, in their marital relationships or their family relationships. Satan is after you. And they're trying to ward it off. They're trying to do the best they can. They're trying to put on all pretentious masks and not make it feel it bothers them or, or they're not going to say anything or what have you. But have you submitted to God first? 
When we submit to God, then we can resist the devil. Again, you cannot do the resisting until you do the submitting of yourselves to God. So I'll end with the first verse. Where do wars and fights come from among you? They do not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. Let's ask God to make us humble, to fashion us like the Lord Jesus Christ. Although he was God in human flesh, allowed men to treat him shamefully, but he kept entrusting himself to a faithful creator, to his faithful father, not that the Lord Jesus Christ was created, don't get me wrong, but the Lord Jesus Christ inhabited a body that his Father made for him. And as he was submitting to his Father as a son in everything, we need to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ in everything. Have we done that? And the joy will start coming forth. And Father, I, I, I just really am amazed that you are in love with somebody like me. But yet, Lord, in that love, I realize that it's, it's, I don't deserve it. And I think that's what makes it so precious, that we don't deserve it, that we weren't redeemed with good works and silver and gold and all the fine things that this passing world can afford, but we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. It was out without spot, without wrinkle. And that was for you and I, brethren. And we would come to God, knowing our need, and he will graciously fill it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take these words today that we, we share today, that we enrich our fellowship by it. But, Lord, I pray that, that we'd search the scriptures to know your love and the depths of it and to be convicted of the fact that we need to understand that you are everything, that you promise to take care of everything, that you promise to direct our steps, that you promise that we will be safe within the storm, as Greg saying earlier, that you have all things in the palm of your hands, do we really believe that? I choose to stretch myself out upon your word. I choose to believe it. And therefore you give me security and joy that's available to all that would ask it. I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.